Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, Ukraine and Russia and the West and how media is covering a growing conflict there. So in the last week, we've seen a lot of movement around the Russia conflict with Ukraine. There's been satellite pictures of, of Russian tanks and troops moving. We've heard that NATO ships and troops are also on the move. And we've seen this kind of extraordinary information warfare start where you have, you know, one day the U.S. intelligence agencies are saying that they have evidence of a false flag operations in which Russian operatives are going in and they're going to create some pretext for a Russian action. Then you have the U.K., Foreign Office saying they have evidence of a government that Russia is is set to back in Ukraine, and it it's incredibly hard to make sense of this information and how to read it, um, which is why I'm really grateful to have Christo Gorosev with us. He's the lead Russia investigator with Bellingcat, which is an investigative site that we've featured before on this podcast. He focuses on security threats, clandestine operations, and information warfare. His investigations into the identity of the suspects in the 2018 poisonings in the UK earned him and his team the European Prize for Investigative Journalism. Christo, welcome. Hello, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming. Before we dive into the information parts of this, I'm just, I'm really curious based on your experience and your reading and your sources, sort of where do you think we are in in Russia and Ukraine? I mean, how close are we to conflict, do you think? Well, first of all, uh, I have to say that we are in totally uncharted territory. We've never been in a situation, at least in our lifetime, when there's so much um, a, uh, actual concrete information suggesting that there's an imminent military conflict uh, about to be launched by Russia. And at the same time, so much uh, confusion among even among Western intelligence agencies and Western governments about how much of that is bluffing and how much of that is, is actually intent. So it's difficult to predict. But what we do know is that uh, from an analytical perspective, Russia is in a place where, or the Kremlin rather, is in a place where it might need to show um, that it's not bluffing because what happened was the Kremlin came up with a laundry list of requests to NATO that um, it knew cannot be fulfilled. Uh, Probably they did that on some misinformed um, suggestion that they might get at least one of those items satisfied. That didn't work out, partly because of, well, uh, the US Congress and and Senate being uh, very, very adamant and ideological about not giving in to, to Russian demands. And um, this resulted in the Kremlin being with a, without an off-ramp and, and needing to show that it's, it meant what it, uh, what it asked for. So that's why, um, I mean, when you have a rogue government cornered, it's not necessarily the best outcome and the best prognosis. So that's why I think regardless of all the information on the ground, some of which can be uh, misleading or based on false, false sources, the analysis of the situation suggests that Russia is very likely to act just because domestically it would look extremely weak if Putin does nothing. And I know you don't know the answer to this. I don't know that anybody does, but your guess again is that it, it, you know, there seems to be a range of 
possibilities being talked about in terms of a Russian action, action from, you know, a fairly limited move to a much more wide scale sort of invasion, which as you say, would be sort of, you know, we, this is harkens back to world war two. It'd be the last time we've seen something like this. Um, what, where do you, where, where does your gut tell you we are on that range? What we are certainly going to see is hybrid uh, warfare, um, a hybrid invasion by Russia. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. But let's for, for a moment consider also the hot warfare scenario. Insiders from the Kremlin have been leaking to also to us, but to other media as well, their concerns that Putin actually has gone rogue even within the perception of rogueness for the, for the Kremlin allies, for the Kremlin um, um, sort of, uh, well, friends, they think he is ready to launch uh, hot warfare. He's ready to even go nuclear with a tactical nuclear weapon being used in a potential warfare just to show to NATO that he doesn't, uh, he's not bluffing. So the scenario for potential actual invasion and a Russian, uh, Russian troops reaching all the way to Kiev that's still there. I mean, that's there. And that's according to Kremlin insiders who are concerned about the scenario and who think that this will bring only negative consequences for Russia. So, um, again, if, if Kremlin insiders think that's, that's doable, then who are we to say that that's not? So I think there's the risk of that. I understand that. That, that by the way, is yeah. amazing. I mean, and it reminds me very much of where we were in this country um, just a year or two ago or a year ago with, with Donald Trump and, and fears of him launching some kind of act of war, one, just because he was sort of unhinged, but mm -hmm. also to detract from his political problems. But you're saying that there's now this sort of similar discussion going on. That, that, that is a very good uh, comparison, except uh, Putin until now was seen as the stable one and uh, yeah. the predictable one. And now suddenly... Uh, well, the establishment, the mainstream establishment, sees him as the unhinged one. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, we'd, we'd never seen such a level of concern at the top of the mainstream elite in Russia as we are seeing now. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's definitely happening, which is the hybrid warfare. That is, um, what you have to understand is that the Russian um, sort of establishment of that, that produces misinformation and hybrid warfare. That's not the monolithic entity. It's not like one Politburo kind of a, uh, that, that used to exist in Soviet Union. It's not one KGB. There's a lot of actors. It's, it's pretty much a market. It's almost like a capitalist market for rendering services to the Kremlin in hybrid warfare. Yeah. That, that ranges from the uh, secret services, each of them competing to deliver results, there's the GRU, the military intelligence, who have their own disinformation and hacking and weaponizing of hacked information department and divisions. There are even two different hacking and disinformation departments with the jury competing with each other. Then there's the FSB and then there's the SVR. So there are three individual um, intelligence agencies competing to deliver results. Separately, there are all the oligarchs that really need favors from the Kremlin. And in, in return, they're offering deniable and well-funded and, uh, and, and well, as I said, capitalist-driven uh, uh, services. I mean, you, all you have to remember is the, uh, the word troll farm in St. Petersburg. That's the disinformation mm. uh, factory, which is run by uh, Prigozhin, 
Putin's chef and funded directly, indirectly by the Russian government through overpaying for uh, catering services that are offered by Evgeny Prigozhin to the Russian military industrial complex. So there's a lot of um, uh, actors, they're competing with each other, but what we see is a uh, redoubled effort in the last three to four months um, by all of them, which means they've received instructions that, uh, well, it's, it's, uh, it's now or never. And this is also something that I would like to issue a caution uh, of, of not taking any of these individual plans or, or activities as the main one or as the approved one. And, and that's why I'm taking with it somewhat with a grain of salt the announcements by the British in, uh, well, the Foreign Office and by the Americans over the last two days saying, oh, we found specific plans for this, this particular actor being the new appointed government head uh, after Russia takes over or of these particular disinformation strategies being the main ones. Yes, these things are happening. They are proposed, they're worked on by an individual, one of, one of these many actors. Um, and most likely MI6 or CIA hacked into one of the uh, uh, email accounts of one of these agencies and found these concrete plans with these concrete people. This does not necessarily mean that these are the plans that will be approved ultimately by Putin. But, uh, but yes, they are representative of, of one or many of, of these proposed scenarios um, for interfering with, with Ukraine. And uh, what we do know for sure is that uh, uh, Russia does have a lot of um, assets within Ukraine um, at different levels of the administration, also the security services. And these people are providing information and also access uh, to the Russian intelligence services as to Ukrainian plans for counter, countering an attack. And this also means that the West or really the NATO countries and uh, uh, Western allies of, of Ukraine cannot be completely open with Ukraine about their own uh, plans and uh, ways to help Ukraine because they're afraid of, leak of inf leakage of information to Russia. So it's a complicated situation. Uh, in a nutshell, the hybrid warfare is there. We saw a cyber attack last week. Uh, we, we, we're seeing a very interesting constellation of offline and off online attacks on Ukrainian government institutions. For example, about 10 days ago, there were more than a thousand false bomb threat attacks uh, phoned into different government agencies, which uh, deadlocked uh, and a large part of the administration. That seemed to be a test for something to come. So, yeah, that, that's that's what we see at the moment. So let's shift the tension from Russia to then the these Western intelligence agencies and the, and the coverage of them. Um, I know it's hard to generalize coverage, but I found that the coverage both of the CIA's false flag operatives story and then, as you mentioned, the foreign offices sort of new regime story to be like completely sort of credulous it was like, well, this is happening, um, as opposed to like, okay, this is a story that these governments are putting out. They're in the middle of this information war with Russia over Ukraine. And it, I mean, the UK one was particularly weird because, you know, the UK is in this political, domestic political war at home. What did you make of these? And what did you make of the coverage of reporters who were writing about it? Well, it's a very good question. Now, if you look for an innocent explanation as to why these um, public releases came at this particular time, um, as opposed to a political uh, explanation, which 
lends itself quite easily um, in the UK scenario, at the very least, because of the domestic problems with the current government. But the innocent explanation could be the following. Um, these governments have been working with Ukraine, with the Ukrainian uh, president's office, to alert the world about the severity of the hybrid warfare threat, including such false flag attacks and, and, and political changes envisaged in, in Ukraine. But for some reason, the Ukrainian government has pushed back on those narratives and has not really either believed in them or agreed to, to issue public notices about them. And Western governments needed, hypothetically again speaking, needed to um, come forward without waiting for Ukraine and, and sort of force Ukraine's hand. This is not a crazy hypothesis. I mean, uh, last week, the Ukrainian president came up with somewhat of a confusing message about whether he takes seriously the threat of imminent war. Uh, warfare with Russia. And that came in the uh, aftermath of a pretty uh, unequivocal statement from, from Blinken and, and, and generally from the Western governments about the threat. So it could be that the West was feeling that Ukraine is just not taking things seriously and they had to sort of name and shame, uh, well, Russia, but indirectly also Ukraine for not taking it seriously. So that's the innocent explanation. The non-innocent one is, of course, that there could oh, by be, the way, uh, by the way, that yep. innocent explanation is weird because I mean, you got to you, you have to assume that Ukraine needs to sort of project some is trying to project some strength of its own, right? It, that that government is not there. They they both want to say this threat is serious, but they also are trying to project this notion of like, well, you know, we're we we we're on top of what's happening, capable of countering this. Isn't that sort of isn't that doesn't that get factored in? No, it, it does. And that's why I think there is a legitimate explanation for Ukraine's um, position. I mean, they need to keep their people calm. I mean, you can't yeah. force your, your population into overdrive and essentially uh, lock, lock up the economy and, and, and everything, especially at the time of uh, other uh, factors such as COVID and, and also domestic issues that they have at the moment. With, uh, right. So what's, what's the other explanation? Well, the other explanation is exactly the, 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 the one where the UK is sitting on just a regular flow of uh, intelligence, rough information that is not verified, validated, but they uh, they put it out there because of the, uh, well, what the tail uh, factor, because this would distract from current domestic issues uh, for the uh, Boris Johnson government. And here's when coverage by media, by mainstream media, is um, is called into question because it doesn't seem to... Uh, allow for this illegitimate explanation of the urgency, and they just cover these these alerts as bona fide, like fully reliable uh, information. And yeah. and this is where I have some issue with uh, with, with with coverage. Uh, and I think you do from 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 the way you ask the question as well. Yeah, I mean, I just I I, I don't understand why it's not treated more um, critically. Before we get, I, I want to ask you about how you think people should be reporting on this, but. But but one more question about the, the the thing with President Biden's press conference and his comments about Russia and Ukraine that that really were in which he said, you know, depending on what it is, if it's just a minor incursion, it's not going to be a big deal. And that really set off both the government in Ukraine and other and other folks that, that it was wildly inappropriate. And and it's, I actually had the same thought about that, that that wasn't I just I. I I, I didn't quite believe it was also unintentional. Did, what did you make of that episode? 
Hmm. Well, that's an interesting angle. I, I, I thought it was an intentional, but I don't believe anything. That's yeah. my problem. <laughs> well, there's, I think you suffer from what we call uh, assumptions of competence, right? Um, and looking at uh, many years of uh, malign activities by Russian intelligence services, uh, we found that incompetence is often an explanation for some missteps. Yeah, uh, I think. And, and I think in this case, we, we might be seeing the same thing. But uh, it, was, it, was misguided. it was misguided, at least from the point of view of, uh, I mean, it did defend, uh, it, it did defend the whole country. So, um, so it was probably not the right time in the right place. Right. And if there's a domestic explanation, then, then uh, well, it certainly was outweighed by, by this impact it did internationally. Well, I mean, I, mean I, think they, I think your point of view is backed up by the fact that immediately the White House put out a statement exactly. trying to sort of walk it back. So um, tell me, I mean, I think, I think we're both saying that, like, news organizations need to be more, need to be a little bit more uh, skeptical about these sort of purported intelligence leaks that they're reporting on. Um, and, and I mean, we're now at the point of this story where it's grown much bigger than the usual sort of national security reporters who have some degree of sophistication around this. It's right. now become a big story that everybody's reporting on. So given that, how do you advise journalists who aren't as experienced in, in this realm, sort of how, how should they be reporting on this kind of stuff? How should they be approaching it? Well, I mean, looking back at uh, history and looking at the context and looking at um, the, the track record of, of previous such alerts, I mean, granted, we haven't seen anything of this size and this, this uh, riskiness before, but we have seen previous uh, alerts, we've, um, also by the British Foreign Office, and we've seen also previous disclosures of false flag operations. So uh, what I would have done uh, if I were a mainstream media outlet, I would have just looked at exactly at uh, how previous such alerts actually showed that some of these plans are, are just one of many that don't come into fruition. So talking about what I just uh, described uh, about the sort of multifaceted, multi-pronged um, planning of such operations that don't necessarily come to fruition, is something that any Russia expert would be able to provide as uh, a sort of a warning. And I didn't see uh, much of that. I didn't see much of mainstream media going to some of the more skeptical Russia experts before publishing that uh, or before covering that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, in this particular case, it might be true. It might be something that we don't see that, that intelligence agencies see. So we have to be open about that possibility. But so should we be about uh, the, fa the fact that in the past, sometimes there have been such false alerts. Do you think that this story is, and it's kind of a weird question because it's, it's, this story is sort of everywhere at this point, but I still got to ask myself, like, do you think it's being covered, it's getting enough coverage or that it's getting covered with the kind of urgency that is called for? Um, well, I think there's some urgency that uh, that is as i said unprecedented because of this uh, united front of western governments in the anglosphere and uh, media wise i see a much more coverage of this than actually in many european mm. um, big countries that are much more focused on the day-to-day -day, mm. um, politics of COVID time of the COVID year um, but what i mean i have my pet peeve which is 
the whole domestic situation in Russia, um, and and that uh, and, the, and, the, and the human rights violations that are uh, seem to be amassing on a day-to-day basis. And I don't see any coverage of, of that really in, in global media, definitely not in, in, in American media. And, and the two things, I mean, the Ukraine war scenario and what's happening in Russia, they're part of the same crazy development in Russia, which is uh, a, a government that is in one of the leading nuclear uh, governments is becoming a rogue state with the only metaphor I can use is um, in any of the mafia Hollywood movies, you have a moment where the villain actually no longer hides that he or she are the villain. And that's when, well, it be, well the risk increases for everybody else in the movie because they, they start shooting left and right. This is where we're in Russia. Russia is no longer um, trying to pretend it's legitimate, that it's uh, it's uh, it's a uh, peacemaker, that it's, that it's not the villain, that it recognizes the villain. Uh, it trolls the world. And this is an one overall story with many tributaries and the Ukraine risk, the Ukraine threat risk is just one of them. And I, I would prefer to see that larger story being on the agenda of mainstream media uh, in a more structured way. Krista, thanks so much. It's great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Um, you can read Krista's coverage and that of his colleagues at Bellingcat. And you can follow CJR's coverage of the coverage of Ukraine at cgr.org through our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and on social media. Thanks for listening. See you next week.